Hey, Gestalt Education Nation, uh, new sponsor alert, new sponsor alert. Today, we're excited to announce uh, Dynamic Disc Designs and Jerome Fryer. Uh, we have an awesome discount code for you. Just use the code Gestalt uh, to get a little bit of money off on the, the Dynamic Disc Designs. They're the, the most realistic anatomical discs that we've ever seen. If you caught our, our episode with uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, you saw an entire shelf full of them. Everything from cavitation instruction to uh, uh, disc dysfunction to SI joint dysfunction, all sorts of amazing joint stuff. Joint movement, yes. vertebral movement. Absolutely. So uh, go to Dynamic Disc Designs, uh, use the code Gestalt. As always, you can use the code Gestalt on Core 360 belt to get a, a little discount on the belts there. We love to use that for biofeedback for teaching respiration, intra-abdominal pressure, and how the, the abdominal wall should be working in, during function. Uh, and then the last one, use the code Gestalt Education 10. Those will all be in the description in the podcast. Gestalt Education 10 at humanlocomotion.com uh, to get off uh, some money off of all of his awesome gadgets and tools and uh, rehab uh, materials. What's your favorite, Brett? He's got a trunk full, but I think, you know, integrating the Topro in, I think, has been a game changer for us here at the office. So I think that would be my pick. Beautiful. All right, guys, don't forget, use the code Gestalt, Gestalt Education 10. Uh, visit the show notes and you'll be uh, hooked up. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Gasol Education Show. Uh, we're back for mini series number two of the day. So, Michael, uh, you're the man of the hour. So, you get included in all these. Uh, these. So, we're here in Dallas for the Neurodynamics World Congress. Uh, we just finished day one, and honestly, day one was a lot of manual stuff, which was awesome. It was uh, Dr. Leahy, who was our guest here, uh, with active release techniques, and then also Dr. Antonio Stecco were kind of the ancillary uh, uh, instructors, along with with you, uh, Michael, and then uh, David Seaman gave us a nice little uh nutrition uh he he covered a lot of stuff he went a, yeah, a lot of grounds yeah, yeah. Uh, there's on yachts yeah there. a little mm-hmm. bit of comedy involved in yeah. there and Ooh. all sorts of good mm-hmm. stuff so i think too <clears throat> this is <clears throat> to, for our listeners this will be really special i mean to have i think two of the experts in the world with obviously michael shacklock and michael Leahy. i think if you could put two people in a podcast together that, you know, when we're talking about nerve function, I mean, these are the two people you'd want together. So that's right. I think that'll be a good, it's a bucket a list pickup. for us. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I, I'll bet you feel the same way, but it seems very odd to be referred to as, you know, the key <laughs> expert in the world or key things oh, like that. No, I don't. And I've never felt like that, especially being around these people. <laughs> yeah, well, me too. Always learning. The more you uh, know, the less you know. That, that's what's so special about this weekend. And, uh, so awesome. But first, we're, we're drinking a, a Brunello. Uh, your favorite type of wine is, yeah. is Italian. You, yeah. uh, you you gave us a good story before we started about how you taught courses in the area and learned a bunch about Italian wine. And we're really coming around to Italian wine little oh, yeah. by little by little. And uh, yeah. so anyway, cheers, guys. Cheers. Uh, to a successful first day. <clears throat> yeah, thank Before you. we really get fun. things going. You know, I just saw on that bottle, it's Montalcino. Uh-huh. I've been to that little town on the top of the hill. Subtle brag. Yeah. Mm, nice. I love good it. Area. Uh, good love area. Good area. Well, uh, let's maybe just start off with uh, Michael. Maybe just give us... Uh, I, I don't know, quick kind of thoughts on, on day one and uh, maybe, maybe a couple things that you, you really enjoyed or that you, you haven't seen, you haven't been with uh, Michael Leahy before. Have no, you we've never, no, yeah. we've never met. Yeah. But I'm sure you've pleasure. heard of active release. You, and you've heard of, I have. Yeah. yeah. I, I get it from every direction on my yeah. courses. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's so, great. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the first encounter with it today then. Oh, okay. Well, well today um, I've never met Dr. Leahy, of course, but on, on my courses, I, you know, people say, oh, I've done I ART. Yeah. What do you think of ART? And I have to say, I, to tell you the truth, I, 
haven't studied it, so I don't know. But what I hear is just great, and, and so uh, and what I'm seeing is commonalities, which are, you know you, you you often feel there's conflicts between concepts and approaches sometimes when you you leave a seminar. But I, I don't feel that. Uh, I, I sort of feel like we're working at similar things, um, maybe a different emphasis or different directions. But I've learned lots. It's been great. Um, it's, what can I say? It's it's kind of you pinch yourself. It's almost surreal, when yeah. You, when you come to an event like this and there's someone like Dr. Leahy here and the other guys and yeah. Stecco and, and Seaman and Annie O'Connor and you guys, you're here to, tomorrow yeah. as well. And yeah. So I'm really happy. It's just been a fantastic day. I've learned lots. Um, I've, I've got to go away and process things because, you know, there's so much information tomorrow or the next day. I'll so write a few things down and learn a bit more. Uh, Michael, uh, you are, you have this uh, amazing reputation for being able to palpate very well. So can you explain to our listeners on what exactly you're trying to feel when you're feeling for nerve entrapment? You, you did it multiple times today. Can you just kind of like walk us through the process of what you're what you're actually feeling? Well, you're you're looking for alterations in tissue texture, tension and movement. Those three things. And each of those three things will tell you where the problem is, what tissue it's in, and 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 what the the actual mechanical problem is with that, and that that gives you insight into other sources of a problem too. But really, it's those three things. So the real trick is to be able to jump jumpstart somebody's learning to be able to pick that up. Uh, I I what we're trying to do is shorten the learning curve for learning that. So I've tried to improve palpation skills for 20 years, and, and hopefully I've done that and gotten better at it. But how can we shorten that learning curve for people? And I think the way to do that is to, when we do a seminar, everyone has problems with soft tissue. Everyone does. So when we find it, I'll, if I find it on Michael, I'll find it and I'll put your th fingers on it yeah. and then I'll move each of the tissues one at one time, one at a time until you feel the difference between what's moving. And then you, you can tell the difference between whether that tissue is moving longitudinally or if it's moving superficially and deep up and down because the tissue underneath it is contracting and swelling and going down or whether the tissue underneath it or next to it, when it moves, does it pull the tissue that you're on? So those three things, if, if I can put your hand on it and show you that it happens, at least in that instance for those structures, once you feel it knows and you know what it is for sure, you'll never miss it. Right. Then you have it. Now, one thing I noticed today that um, I wasn't surprised by, just a little bit different than when I went through all the courses, was I felt like you were using a lot of the patient's active movement. So they would do a movement and you would be, you'd have your hands on the patient. And can you tell us what you are kind of, I'm assuming you're trying to feel relative motion or disassociated movement well, between the muscles. I maybe? think you're talking about the first step of the diagnostic algorithm. Yep. So you have, a, you have them demonstrate the problematic position or motion that causes their problem, mm -hmm. not necessarily pain, but a problem. And then you palpate them during that motion and you start where they think the problem is, but then you expand your circle 
of palpation in all three planes until you find something aberrant that happens, something bad that happens. And then, then keep your fingers on that and then try to find something with your other hand that happens before that spot. And you keep doing that over and over and again until you've found the first aberrant thing that happens and nothing bad happens before that in any plane at any distance away from where your hand is. And you keep expanding the circle until nothing bad is happening out inside that circle. And I'm not seeing any compensations either. So that, you know, they can, they can do a compensation to make up for a lack of motion someplace. And that's not happening. And that's definitely the first thing that's happening. Then you can use another technique for figuring out what structure it is. Right. And then you basically try to lock them all as tight as they can get and have them motionless and then move one at a time until, oh, yeah, that's the one I'm on. It's the tibialis anterior. And and then the third step is to f fix it. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about the patient? Because obviously you work with a lot of athletes that maybe they're, they don't have a pain syndrome or they're not in pain. Um, are you ever just moving the patient's body or the athlete's body just to feel these things that we're talking about right now, just to improve performance? Right. Well, you, I mean, I would use think, two yes. ways. I use two ways to do that. One is is to do a biomechanical, a visual biomechanical analysis. If you don't have anything, have them walk, or if you think it's more uh, with a heavier load, have them do a squat. Uh, a, a, a compound motion like that that involves different body parts to see what the motion is and then palpate do a step one and find the first aberrant thing that happens yeah and then and then go from there the the other method is you know to you, you can do a, a visual biomechanical analysis like a pole vaulter you can't hang up there and feel what's happening as they go over the bar so you do have them do an activity and then watch it or video it and see where the mechanical problems are. Then, then you can identify which tissues are calling, causing the problem. Is there a lack of acceleration? Is there too abrupt of deceleration of the joint motion and it stops short of full range? Is, is there an aberrant motion like the femur internally rotates when the hip flexes? Uh, you know, that, that'll because the, 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 the adductors drawn up tight. The, the adductors, uh, drawn up tight. So y you can see mm -hmm. these things as well as addition to palpate. If, if you don't have access to all of that, then I recommend you do an SFMA. And that'll find problems that aren't even related to the problem that they're coming It'll in with. It'll make you look globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, sure. You'll look globally and it's a very, very good screening tool arguably the best screening tool to find problems and it'll get you in the area and then you have to start palpating again it'll get you to the stadium but not to your seat maybe yeah yeah that, uh, yeah michael what do you think as far as like if you were to see an athlete there's no symptoms i mean you and mm. i have had a lot of good conversations yes, about maybe yes. like a maintenance or a wellness program within mm. the world mm. of neurodynamics mm. what what is that kind of the future maybe like to oh look i, I think um neurodynamic assessment it could be part of screening mm -hmm. uh I, i'm not sure if that answers your question but it is in the right direction but p athletes need perfection Normal is not good enough. 
and so people, we all have bit, uh, dysfunctions or imperfections in it as we move. Well, I do. <laughs> anyway, yeah. As right. we move. And so if you were to assess me, my neurodynamics will be imperfect, but I'm not provoking it, so it's not a problem. But for an athlete, performing artist, etc., it could be a problem. And so for me, uh, neurodynamic screening could be valuable, but it, it standard testing could be a waste of time in a lot of those people because this is not extensive enough and not specific enough for the way that person moves and what their requirements are and what they how they function and so for me uh, we, as, as you know, we've got different levels of evaluation with the neurodynamics. The high-level ones, the level three performance ones, we start integrating um, neurodynamics with their posture, their movement, and their positional requirements. Uh, and so for me, muscle contractions plus nerve or extreme positions plus nerve, you could even do a, a joint play test or muscle stretch in a neuro, nerve position to figure out if there's a relationship between an imperfection in neurodynamics and OMS. So the answer is athletes, yes. High performance, yes. Mixed type mechanisms, testing with neurodynamics, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think, uh, Michael Leahy, you made a good point today. You're working on that case of plantar fasciitis. You noticed that there was a little joint blockage between the first metatarsal and first cuneiform. And you made a good comment in that, like, you could have released that joint, but the chance of it coming back would be high. So you just made the point that, you know, we need to be paying attention to the soft tissues around that area also to maybe maintain the joint play, even if we do decide to manipulate or we don't but we at the very least we need to be paying attention to the soft tissues you're yeah. a chiropractor so i mean you could have easily unloaded that joint and left it at that but you decided to kind of that happens yeah but the key is you know it sounds kind of simple oversimplified and trite to say it but you have to find the first aberrant thing that happens and it's never it's almost never the most obvious thing and and then work backwards from that otherwise you have a real good chance of just making them better, but you don't really fix the problem. Right. Or it, it reoccurs. And... That's, yeah, that's why it reoccurs. Yeah, right. Sometimes in a f few minutes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And we, it was interesting. When we did our podcast with you, our first one, we had literally thousands of people who got reinvigorated looking at the soft tissues again because I feel like the pendulum had swung away from manual treatment. And I think it's worth revisiting. I'd like to hear what both of you say. Um the evidence-based group, which we're all part of that group, but they really are trying to tell us that, you know, we, sh we can't palpate. There's no reliability in palpation. So just to kind of revisit that thought, just because I think like that thought is taking a lot of young chiropractors and students and they're thinking that they shouldn't be palpating because they can't feel things. Uh, one of the messages today was the importance of the ability to palpate. So in yeah. a time as this pendulum has swung so much, can you guys give us motivation on like why it is important to be able to still be able to do, I guess, not only palpation, but manual therapy in itself? Right. The, I'm, I'm assuming the way I demonstrate that to yeah. people yeah. is I, I start with an example like uh, in just uh, just to the elbow in in the wrist extensors finger extensors area and i'll 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 put it in a position i'll extend the elbow flex the wrist pronate and and then just extend the fingers and flex the fingers and and to ask them what do you feel and everyone's got little problems here and they say oh yeah i i, I feel them moving okay well depending on where their hand is they're, they're usually on the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis, and they feel movement, but it's not that muscle moving. Mm -hmm. 
it's the it's the extensor digitorum moving underneath that and then i'll show them the difference how to feel the difference between those two if you give a person a tactical a tactile example of that the light bulb goes off mm -hmm. and and then they're a lot more open to learning the actual technique of palpation because everyone thinks they feel it everyone does but what are you feeling and there's differences and they are palpable i have a I have a spot in my low back where the uh, erectors are stuck to the multifidus at the lowest two vertebrae in the lumbar spine i don't let anyone fix it because it's the perfect demonstration of this I'll put their thumb on the spot, I'll lock out the multivitus, and then move the erectors using the spine above those two segments. So the multivitus doesn't move, but the erectors move, and they can feel it slide. And then I have them push their contact in harder and harder and harder until there's no slide. Then I have them move down to the area that's problematic, and I'll do that, and if it, there's no... There's no slide in that. And it, it amazes people that they can actually feel that because most healthcare providers don't think that's possible. Right. Mm, yeah. But once they know it's possible and you put their hand on it and explain what it is, it opens up the barn door and, and, and then they can learn. Right. And I, I think it originally, you know, we had talked about maybe it's not fibrosis and adhesion that we're feeling. Maybe it's yeah. like the layers of the, the fashion, the muscles sliding against each other. Maybe that's like what we're feeling. So, yes. you know, over the last 20 years or whatever, what have you changed your tune of what like you thought like the soft tissue lesion was compared to what you think it is now? Or what, I guess what I'm trying I to say, we all know how powerful ART is, is what we're treating has that changed? Is it becoming more neurophysiologic than we thought, or what? What would you say? The the approach to diagnosing and treating it has changed because people have generally been resistant to the idea that the, the motions and relative motions are more complicated than what they thought. And then it, fascia is the best example. Everyone starts thinking muscle right away. But the superficial and deep fascia, when, the, when it doesn't slide over the muscle, it feels different. So we've actually, we're almost done developing a new course starting with fascia instead of going from muscle to fascia. So instead of the logic being you concentrate on the muscle, diagnose based on the muscle, and then you follow the tension wherever it goes, and which is probably going to be fascia, that, that was not hitting home with people. So now, now we're having the course that is how to diagnose and treat fascia. Uh, and then you can go to the others from that, but you have to be able to tell the difference. And I'll get your opinion on the evidence-based side in a second. Mm -hmm. What about, I mean, some of your critics, Mike, will say, well, it's not possible to palpate through all these different layers of skin and fascia. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're in like the, the calf area of the, yeah. of the patient and we're, we're palpating for depth, what are some of the things or what are some of the tips when you're having to palpate through multiple layers of muscle and fascia that you can still allow you to palpate? Well, just those two examples I gave you with the yeah. wrist extensors, extension digitorum, you know, when, when you actually physically put their hand on it right, and then move each muscle independently, 
and then show them the difference between the bulge of a muscle contracting, relaxing underneath, or the slide of relative motion between them move, moving longitudinally, and then the changes with your pressure uh, on your depth. What What is your depth of your contact have? If you go too hard, you're going to trap the tissues together, and they're all move as one. You can't tell the difference. Right. But if, if you vary your depth, like if you feel they're not moving, then, then you can't just assume there's an adhesion between the two. What you have to do is release some of your depth and give it a chance to slide. And if it still doesn't slide, then you have a sliding problem between the two tissues. That's applied muscle to muscle, muscle to nerve, fascia to muscle. It's the same thing. Right. So, yes, you can palpate the difference between a fascial problem, a fascial problem connected to a muscle, connected to a nerve, the, and, and the uh, interfaces between all those tissues. They're palpable. But y you actually have to show them to where they actually feel it. And do you find that new things get exposed as you're treating more superficial layers? So as you're getting rid of tension and tone in more superficial areas, you're starting to expose things that maybe you didn't feel originally. Yeah, so that's, it's a why, bit of a that's why trend. in the diagnostic algorithm, once, once you fix what you think is the problem, you go back to your original test because if you free up a restriction between two tissues, for example, that, that one tissue is going to move farther because it's more free. The right. nerve, for example. Mm -hmm. The nerve will travel farther. Well, maybe it's stuck just proximal to that. And, and you, you need to find that. Right. Because you know, once you fix the first one, it, it can uh, uncover a second. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah completely. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, Mike, we've we've had a lot of good conversations. Again, we're all in the evidence-based group, so I'll throw that out as a disclaimer. But what are some of your critics say about neurodynamics? Or I mean, it could be outside of palpation, even like what? Or just manual therapy? Manual role. therapy in general. Yeah, I think the big criticism of manual therapy is things like reliability for palpation, anyway. Um, although um, I sort of feel like if you go too far to one end of the spectrum. Uh, evidence-based research doesn't always reproduce a clinical situation. Uh, it certainly doesn't reproduce fine palpation. Uh, and a good example is um, uh, someone I was seeing quite a while ago as part of a conference did a, an evaluation and the, the patient had lumbar radiculopathy. I was only told they had lumbar radiculopathy, the level and the side. But then I said, you observe, so you, the person lay down and I could see uh, a dip in the erector spinae at that level. It's actually quite extreme. You don't usually see a little dip. You can see a bit of wasting sometimes or hyperactivity, stuff like that. But I was a little surprised. So I started feeling in there, and my hand could sink way deep. It was really soft. Uh, levels above and below, not so much. Other side, no, not really significant problem. So I said to the audience, um, I would suspect that multifidus is wasted. Now, I can't feel multifidus. But if you're thinking the evidence of the evidence, the research shows that multifidus does get wasted, and I felt that there was a corroborating piece of evidence in the clinical observation, which was I could sink my finger yeah, like right in. Yeah, yeah, exactly it's it's so. really soft, mm -hmm. and you think, gee, you know, how how can this person function with such with such a soggy muscle? <laughs> you know, but and and someone said, but you can't feel multifidus. I said, absolutely. But we know from the research that multifidus gets wasted. And I could see evidence over the top of it that if the erector spinae are wasted, there's a good chance something else is going on there as well. And I could dig right deep. So I said, my clinical hypothesis, if we're thinking morphologically, 
is that multifidus would be wasted. And in the audience, the two PTs who referred the patient looked at each other forebodingly, and I said, what does that mean? And they said, oh, we didn't tell you, but MRI shows that multifidus is wasted at that level and on that side. Now, I didn't feel multifidus, but if you think of evidence plus what you feel, you can put them together and develop hypotheses. Okay, and to me, the the evidence based thing is you don't don't touch, don't feel. It's not reliable, but if you don't touch, you don't feel. You will never learn because that's one of the most important parts of learning. Observation. We are taught not to trust our observations, but for me that is wrong. You don't trust your observations, you don't learn. So for me, palpation is one of the really important skills, even if it's just to localise where a patient hurts. At the worst worst case scenario, touch the part that hurts, and that helps the therapeutic relationship. Right. You know, so if you go from psychosocial right to the physical, palpation is still a very important skill. Alison Grimaldi is saying that if you palpate the Greatest trochanter, and it's perfectly normal, no pain. That's pretty good at excluding trochanteric bursitis. So you don't just use it to impl- implicate, you use it to, to learn, trust your observations, develop ideas, test them, and it helps your skills. <clears throat> it helps connect with the patient, find the part that hurts. Not saying that that's the only thing you would do, or even coach the patient to focusing on that ear. Because we know, you know, there is the opinion that you follow the pain and you you, you are lost. Mm-hmm. But true for some things. But for me, palpation is still a really important skill for, for certain reasons in certain patients. Uh, and tomorrow we hear from Jeffrey Bove on uh, palpation of nerves, and he talks about um, you know, if a nerve palpates painfully, then you can almost guarantee that it's been sensitized and that's a problematic nerve. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And, uh, and if, if you go to reliability studies, Anita Schmidt's groups found that in at least asymptomatic subjects, responses to nerve palpation were highly reliable. So if, you, if someone says palpation's unreliable, well, not for nerves. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying we're reliable, but it's been shown to, that it can get reliable. Right. So this this idea of palpation never being reliable for me and nerves is actually not supported by the research. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to add, uh, Mike, on as far as palpate when you palpate nerves and they're painful? Any like clinical pearls or? Well, that's that's certainly a sign that something is amiss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then your job is to figure out what and where. Yeah. Uh, by palpation, and and that's a some of that is a learned skill too. What does a nerve feel like? How small of a nerve can you palpate? And and with help, you can find much smaller nerves than you think you could. Just just like with muscle, if you if you move a mo- the erectors over the multifidus and you put somebody's hand on it, you can feel the difference. And those are the only two things there besides thracolumbar fascia and lat, but you can eliminate that other ways by moving the shoulder. The uh, when it comes to a nerve, it usually works the best to find uh, the larger part of the nerve and the more fascial part of the nerve, the larger diameter nerve, and then trace it as far as you can. Um, when, you, when you tighten the tissues, including a nerve, and if, if you go where you think the nerve is and, and then go 90 degrees to that back and forth, that's usually the best way to find the nerve because you'll, you'll flip over it or find a little wiry uh, feeling thing that's obviously not a muscle. Uh, could be fascia, uh, but the fascia is on the nerve too. So, so there are methods 
to hone in your palpation skills on, on the nerves. And a lot of that is functional anatomy, understanding yeah. cross-sectional yes, anatomy, exactly. understanding where you're at yeah. in time and space. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, what, about, what about manual therapy's role in neurodynamics, Michael? <clears throat> like where, you know, we, we had two heavy hitters in the manual therapy world with fascial mm. manipulation and active release techniques today. Mm. Uh, where in your mind does manual therapy play into a neurodynamic problem we'll, put it that way. well first of all with neurodynamic testing my preference is passive first mm -hmm. because I'm the expert you guys are the expert how to move people passively you're the expert and right. and feeling how people respond can be an important part of getting cues about what to do next what might be going wrong um, and so passive movement hands-on generally for me is an important skill used appropriately in the right patient you wouldn't use it in, in someone who's got major psychosocial issues with chronic pain but but you you you, you may use it for certain neurodynamic testing and, and manual techniques to nerve, fantastic for some things. I can palpate a nerve and think, that look that feels swollen. Mm. Um, and if you look at the patient, they kind of their nonverbals are different from palpating other one. And, and even on courses where people are allegedly are allegedly asymptomatic, or we don't know they're symptomatic until we palpate them, I can say, well, it, that, that doesn't feel quite normal. Might not always be symptomatic, but very frequently they say, well, actually, that's part of the pain I get when I run or stuff like that. And, and so, well, manual skills are really important. Uh, it, it's surely not validated, but science isn't perfect. Clinical practice is not perfect. So why, why give it up just because it's not perfect? Right. You know, I, 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 do I don't you see the point in stopping it. Mm -hmm. So that nerve that we find that might be painful, but they're not really complaining about anything, um, I'm assuming because that nerve's irritated, that could be affecting motor, motor output and other things. So there might be some salient or silent mm, mm. maybe things that, you know, although they don't overtly have symptoms, it could potentially yeah, be yeah. a problem. Yeah. My focus generally, though, is, is symptomatic nerves. But there are people who have, uh, you know, they're swollen and symptomatic, but there, there are also people who have asymptomatic neuropathy or nerve problems. How far you take that into the treatment area is kind of a bit subjective, but but certainly in some cases you might clear that like out. Like tarsal tunnel is a place I see it. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. like they don't really have a complaint, but you can see like mm. you can feel irritation there, maybe a little bit of swelling in the mm. tarsal tunnel. And I've got no problem with treating that manually. Right. You know, clear it out, exclude it as a possibility, mm -hmm. and then audit follow up and so forth. No, no problem with that at all. Which you may find as a as a precursor to something upstream or downstream that's caused compression in that area, correct? So you may use that as another yes. clue in your... It can be a precursor or the result. Uh, it can go the other way too. See it all the time with athletes in the tarsal tunnel mm. where they have tendons or a nerve that have a little adhesion between the ligaments and the nerve. And so it doesn't slide freely. And you can feel that when you find that, oh, I didn't tell you I have XYZ. <laughs> right, right. When we were with Tom Michaud this last weekend mm -hmm. at, at the MPI Gate Seminar, and so we actually talked about that with people with uh, excessive subtalar movement, yeah. that that can that can cause the um, the tarsal tunnel to start getting bogginess and some swelling in there. You had a good conversation with Adam, mm -hmm. and, and he said that that could be your hint as to maybe a posting. You know, maybe you do do a varus post a there post maybe if to try fine. to control mm -hmm. eversion in the mm -hmm. in those athletes and and try to head off some of those uh, some of those conditions long term yeah. which I think is what yeah. you're getting at yeah. Yeah. and I think 
you know, all our speakers today, basically, they comment on the fact that they felt that nerve entrapment a lot of times isn't like an isolated one spot issue. I felt like everybody, some people are calling it double crush. I mean, uh, Antonio basically said it could be multiple spots along. Yeah, this is a really interesting, interesting discussion. I've been following the research on double crush, both in the clinical human science as well as in the animal, animal models. And it's taken a long time for them to validate the model, but finally it's happened. And the gold standard is electrophysiology. So if you get in a, a, a compression in one area, um, the idea is that it will take less compression in another area to produce another uh, neuropathy. But electrophysiologically, they've not been able to validate it until recently, which is basically now you, you do get a compression in one area and it takes less compression at the, another area to change it, the electrophys. So, so at least in the animals now, it's been validated. But I wouldn't so much call it double crush. I'd call it spread of pathophysiology right. or spread of function, dysfunction along the nerve. And I think you, you said it. We call it well. a whole nerve syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So we're kind of talking about the same thing. Right. Crushes is a bit dramatic. Yeah. Um, and it's not it's double. Not, it could be quadruple. Yeah, or... it could be a whole systemic type problem <laughs> yeah. along the yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I, I feel like is kind of a big, uh, I don't know, it's a big movement to actually have the validation, but then that's what we're seeing in clinical practice. And so to, to have both of those sides, it's really important. So uh, maybe just your closing thoughts. Dr. Well, can Lee, I ask one yeah, thing? Because yeah, uh, I want to, on that theme, it's almost, I feel like we need a kinetic chain approach with the nervous system. And I'm, I say that because like Michael, today you talked about like of the people that are diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome, you found that you said 90% of them are usually at the pronator teres site for the yeah, most part uh, you threw it uh, yeah I, I wouldn't hold you or to higher it. or higher yeah yeah so I, I mean there's issues with the nerve the whole way but the source of the problems right not the carpal tunnel i feel like the world needs to know that i mean because i would i would assume this well is we published to a, a study out of uc san diego medical school yeah to that effect uh-huh. but only one study. Yeah. Right. Right. But I feel like that probably means there's like a lot of unnecessary treatment, whether it's surgery or whether, you know, therapies mm-hmm. that are money being allocated in the wrong yeah. area. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it plays into both of our approaches, right? A, a really good standardized neurodynamic testing with palpation of the tissues surrounding it is probably the gold standard. It's a very important part. Which, yeah. And so combining those two things together will give you a lot of the picture of what's going on with this patient. Yeah. And Michael, yes. do you do any neurodynamic testing per se, as you saw Michael do today, or is that not part of your toolbox? No, I, I, I do similar testing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michael's system of neurodynamic testing is more and much more involved than mine. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to steal his and start using <laughs> the, the, uh, but you know, the, the point is you need to, when it comes to a nerve, you have to examine the entire nerve. Uh, as soon as you don't do that, guaranteed you haven't found the whole problem. Well, uh, you exposed today that you maybe should be exposing the contralateral nerve as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's in some people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the neuroscientists say you know, there's no such thing as a focal lesion in the nervous system or uh, focal dysfunction. So along the path, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a continuum. Well, what, yeah. And what we do with, like, say the sciatic nerve, for example, <laughs> is that in order to isolate where the problem is, well, let's say the problem's in the low back with radiating down the leg. So we'll put the spine in a neutral position and then palpate the plantar surface of the foot and the tissues inside and extend the toes. 
and see if that pulls the nerve. And if it, there's aberrant motion or lack of motion between the nerve, uh, like the digital nerves, in, in between the digital nerves and that tissue. In that particular instance, it's better to flex the toes and dorsiflex and have the nerve go the opposite way because the difficulty in palpation. But then each segment above that, then, then we'll dorsiflex, keep the, nose, the, the toes extended and dorsiflex and palpate the nerve up to the knee and then extend the, extend the knee and palpate it up to the hip and then flex the hip and palpate it into the spine and then move the whole segment and see if you get an aberrant uh, uh, tension in the in the hamstrings and then reverse that for the other side so you put the leg in a neutral position and then flex the lumbar spine then the thoracic spine then the cervical spine and then, and then the occiput and maybe add rotation in either direction to that. And if you can get the patient to do it, you, you flex the spine one segment at a time. You just kind of curl it one segment at a time. And that'll, that's not perfect, but it'll give you an indication on where, where the hang up is in either the spinal cord or the sciatic nerve. So it gives you a real good jump start on where to start, where to start work. And one of my biggest disappointments was I was hoping that neurodynamic testing would tell me exactly where the spot of entrapment was. And honestly, like the sensitive nervous system, Butler's original book, you were kind of led to believe that that test would tell you where the spot was. And you kind of enlightened us that it, I mean, it might give you some it ideas. It some information, yeah, but it's, it's, it's not, not very specific. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. Right, that's right. Yeah. Any comments on that between you two on that, that yeah, thought? Or? Yeah, yeah, I, I can give you this. Yeah. The research on that is quite tortuous, um, and we're, we're part of that. The, the, the bunch of studies. Now, if if you do a, a different neurodynamic sequence for a test, um, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter so much what sequence of movements you use. The, if the endpoint between all the joint ranges of motion is the same, then the strain at the end is pretty similar. But it's just the part you start first. Uh, start at is under elongation for longer, and that's been found by Bob Nee and Michelle Coppers' group and Fresh Cadavers. But what so the, the point was that at that point the sequencing uh, hypothesis failed or wasn't proven. Um, but what we found, what, what's now been found, it's un, yet to be published. If you use shear wave elastography, boom. That's where it shows a focus of stiffness. Right. And so the strain is not all quite the same as stiffness. And also <clears throat> the range of motion in he conscious humans when you do a neurodynamic sequence is different from cadavers because cadavers don't tell you what they feel. So you go through this their pain points. And so in a human, conscious human, they say that hurts, stop. So by that time, you see the end position for all the joint ranges is actually different from the cadaver studies. Mm. So you end up with a different result in conscious humans from what you do in the cadavers for the ranges of motions of, the, of each joint. And so it, my prediction is that it's going to become more validated, partly because some of the early data we, we're seeing with shioabilastography is, is now um, looking really good. And then, so Mike, when, for you, yeah, how do you get, um, if you're suspecting median nerve, how do you get to the pronator teres besides anything more than what you've already said, or is it? Start with two fingers and the thumb and examine from that point, uh, and you'll find it, whether it's carpal tunnel or pronator teres, uh -huh. but then examine the proximal side as well, and, and in sequence, take your tension 
past you know each joint into the spine and including you know the spine itself we're we're starting two research projects now to try to validate that we can actually tell manually when a nerve is stuck to surrounding tissues uh, when, when you encourage that slide. Uh, we think that's true, but we need, we need to validate that well. But if you can, combine that sequence of range of end range of motion, pulling the nerve, relax on one side, pull on the other side, combine that with the palpation to see, feel where the entrapment is, uh, if we can validate that, uh, that'll be a that'll be a big step. And if if we're dealing with like acute disc herniation or spinal stenosis, stenosis, some kind of spinal pathology, mm-hmm. uh, you would think that active release wouldn't have an answer for that, just because you're dealing with more of the muscles and you know, et cetera. So what what how do you handle those cases from an active release standpoint? We're dealing with like spinal nerve root pathology. Well. Two, two ways that needs to be approached. One is if, if you do have a significant disc bulge and it's effacing, say, a nerve root or, or the spinal cord, uh, the, the best we can do using ART, there, there are techniques to take care of the disc, but the, the best we can do using ART is to improve the motion of each intersegment. The, one segment over another. One of the reasons discs get, you know, problematic is that one vertebra gets locked on another and, and the pressure on the disc is skewed to one side. And, and so the pounds per square inch uh, applied to the vertebra goes up. So if we improve the position and mechanics of each vertebra, it takes some of the pressure off. So it doesn't doesn't change the disc, but it takes some pressure off. the uh, The second way is, it's really hard to tell the difference between a, a disc pressing on a nerve root and the nerve root stuck in the foramen. So, you know, we have the the test we demonstrated today by, you know, measuring uh, the what should be a linear increase in hamstring tension with uh, dorsiflexion, knee extension, hip flexion. If, it, if it's not linear, if it's exponential at some point, we suspect that the nerve is entrapped in the foramen. And then you do a maneuver to free that up, and then that problem goes away. Uh, so it depends on what you mean by nerve root uh, problem. Uh, then you also have a compromise of the nerve root in in the lateral recess and at the foramen and the foramen because of arthritic uh, facet joint. Sure. Uh, so there are several ways to approach this. I think they all need to be used to get the best idea of where the problem is. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Uh, you got introduced, I think, for the first time to Stecco today, too? No. But you uh, met him before. Uh, actually, we're doing a research project with them. Oh, beautiful. As well. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your take on the whole fascial movement? I'm sure you get a lot of questions on that. And- uh, actually, uh, today was the first time I've actually see, seen him diagnose and, and use the techniques. Okay. It's really thought provoking. Right. Uh, to me. And so I'm trying to figure out where, where the 
symbiosis is yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Between, between the two, our method of treating fascia and diagnosing it and, and that method. Beautiful. I don't have that thought out yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll check back in a, in a year maybe. <laughs> it, is, it is tough. I mean, uh, that's the hard part with all these different systems, I think, is trying to talk the same language or you know, interpret mm. different languages. And, and uh, I think there's more commonalities than, than we probably lead on to. And, What's yeah. so encouraging here meeting Michael and, and seeing Antonio again and seeing what you're doing is, you know, it's, it's, there are commonalities, but I think, think what's happening is we're trying to analyze a problem from completely different directions mm -hmm. and we're arriving at the same answer. Yeah. I think that's telling. I think too, what people really want to know is, can we flush out the cases that need this specific tool? Like if you yes. don't have ART in yeah. your toolbox and this case walks in, then you don't, you're not going to get that patient better or the same thing with neurodynamics. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's the golden nugget in the assessment process is to be yeah. able to ferret out who needs that one specific mm -hmm. technique. Cause there's going to be a lot of overlap in a lot of cases a lot where of overlap. we all will yeah. get them better for different reasons, you know? So like yeah. being able to isolate what that one thing is about, this modality that is able to produce that unique result. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, Do you have any thoughts on but, that? I mean, well, it, it looks it's like? also possible that let's say I have uh, pressure tension on a nerve root in the lumbar spine, whether you use the fascial manipulation technique or a neurodynamics testing as a start and then techniques or ART, they'll all help. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a negative with that. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but maybe which one might be the best in what situation? Yeah, there you go. Love that mm -hmm. timing. Mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Any thoughts of that, Michael? I mean, oh, I think that's that's like a cornerstone of clinical practice. Yeah. Um, you know, figuring out the the dominant mechanisms, because the word cause these days is controversial. <laughs> it's about yeah. factors and contributing contributing stuff, and hopefully we can get the dominant mechanisms and change them for the better. Yeah. Love that. I love it. Dinner great time, I think. Yeah, great conversation, guys. Thank you both for sitting down with us, number one. Thank yeah. you. And uh, thank you for your contributions today. Uh, it was uh, – this is a pipe dream that the three of us uh, kind of thought up a, literally almost a year ago. And uh, to see it come to fruition and uh, to see it I, being uh, not combative but – productive you know like so many times i feel like these these meetings are, are meant out to be something different but uh today was such a productive day thought-provoking and uh, uh that's it, it literally gets me so excited to, to hear from both of you and then uh, to see what's next i think everybody. too to see everybody interested in each other's presentations exactly. like mm, mm. no one was wanting to miss because you know they actually were wanting to hear what that person had to say yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. learn something absolutely. Oh, this, is, this is the first conference i've been to for a long time where i wanted to watch everyone <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. Love it. I love it. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you both. Good luck with patience, guys. And uh, we'll see you at the next Neurodynamics Congress. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, for a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.